Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Before we start the show, I want to let you know something. My latest novel, Personal Fable, is free for the next uh, few days. So if you're hearing this ad, it's currently free if you're a Kindle user. So just look it up on your Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can even get one of those for free by getting the free Kindle app on your phone. And then head over, get Personal Fable, have a read, and if you love it, leave a review. And I hope you love the story. Now, let's get on with the podcast. P.S. The promotion runs the 11th, 12th, and 13th of March. Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. Talking about Chapter 4.1, Hail and Farewell. Uh, not a lot of this book is registering for me. I find I do these long readings and at the end of them I can't even think sort of what happened. Um, Swim says the moment fishy says, yikes on the possible COVID. Yeah, well, don't know. It's inconclusive. So we did a test and it was very faintly positive. And then we did another test and it was negative. And like very, very faintly we were like, oh, is that a line or like looking at it in different, tilting it under the light and stuff like that. Um, and then we were like, these tests are pretty old. How old are they? And we weren't really sure. I'm like maybe more than a year old. Um, so it was a kind of an inconclusive one, you know, possible COVID. She seemed fine today though. Had a day off school. Seemed pretty happy about that. Um, the bar is low, says Swim, but the reading today was amusing. Our George appears to have been compelled to attend what is, to use a modern vernacular, basically a network function to meet with others to exchange information and develop professional and social contacts. George's snarkiness ensues. Snarky, meaning critical or mocking in an indirect or sarcastic way. My favourite line was, I began to wonder how it was that women could take any faint interest in men. New word to me is alembicated, yeah, new to me as well. Um, the definition is over-refined of ideas, expressions, etc., excessively stylized, And that's how George describes T.P. Gill's mind. Tom the Trimmer. Quite handsome, apparently, T.P. Gill. Let's have a look. Wikipedia link. Huh. Yeah. Handsome. He looks like he could be a modern-day hipster. Um, all right. Oh, there's more comments. Techrific says, This portion wasn't so bad, but I wish we had a reader's companion, or at least footnotes. We can admire a certain turn of phrase and occasional funny line, but this isn't a piece of fiction. And I, as I constantly remind myself, this is a memoir, and context is an important part of the enjoyment of the book. The big names I know, the sites, or cities of London and Dublin, I even have some grasp of the Irish conflict and a political party, Sinn Féin, helping you out here, Andrew. It's pronounced like Chin Féin. Oh, thanks. Chin Féin. I won't even remember that because it looks so different from that. Sinn Féin. Chin Féin. Thanks, mate. Uh, but all the names of people that were supposed to not only know, but know of their proclivities and the nuances in their views on literature and art and politics, it's overwhelming for my part, and I can't 
quite bring myself to engage in some basic research other than the odd Wikipedia query. Yeah, wow. Chin Fein, if you know what I mean. Um, there's, I don't even know what that means. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a dense book. It's assuming we're people that we aren't and we kind of have a starting point of that we don't. Um, we push on. I found for me, I don't know, even the basics of what happened in a chapter, like, you know, Swim gave a little summary there. It was basically a networking event and the George was snooty. Um, and it's like, is that what I just read? Because I, yeah, beats me. I don't really remember any of that. We open on some dialogue here. Well, that's where we left off at least. An excellent story that probably started from some remark of Gill's and was developed as it passed from mouth to mouth, a piece of folk. If a story be told three or four times by different people, it becomes folk. You have no doubt stories of the same kind about everybody. This last remark was injudicious, injudicious, for I seem to frighten my neighbour and I have some difficulty in tempting him into gossip again, and there... Are there any other contributors to the express present? Yes, he said, yielding again to his temptation to talk. T.W. Rolleston, do you see that handsome man ahead above everybody else, sitting a little way down the table? Yes, I said, and what a splendid head and shoulders. Byron said he would give many a poem for Southies, and Southies were not finer than that man's. As if guessing that somebody was admiring him, Rolleston looked down the table, and I saw how little back there was to his head. He lacks something, my neighbour said, and I was told how Rolleston came down every night to write his ledger in a great cloak and in leggings if it were raining, bringing with him his own pens and ink and blotting pad, all the paraphernalia of his literature. A man like that, writing letters, I said, nothing short of an odyssey, one would have thought. So many people did think, he was a great scholar at Trinity, and in German he translated or helped to translate Walt Whitman into German. When he came back, the prophet, the old man, John O'Leary, whom he told me, you know, in France, the ancient beard at the end of the room, accepted him as Parnell's successor. And now he is writing letters for the Express. How did the transformation happen? O'Grady tells a story. Who is O'Grady, I asked enjoying the gossip hugely, and my neighbour drew my attention to a grey, round-headed man, and after looking at him for some time, I said, how lonely he seems among all these people. Does he know anybody? Or is he very unpopular? He is very little red, but we all admire him. He is our past, and my neighbour told me that O'Grady had written passages that for fiery eloquence and energy were equal to any that I would find in Anglo-Irish literature. Only, only what, I asked. And he told me that O'Grady's talent reminded him of the shaft of a beautiful column rising from amid rubble heaps. After a pause during which we mused on the melancholy spectacle, I said, Rolleston, you were going to tell me about Rolleston. O'Grady tells that he found Rolleston a West Briton, but after a few lessons in Irish history, Rolleston donned a long black cloak and a slouch hat and attended meetings, speaking in favour of secret societies, persuading John O'Leary to look upon him as one that might rouse the country, going much further than I had ever dreamed of going, O'Grady said. 
His extreme views frightened me a little, but when I met him next time and began to speak to him about the holy Protestant empire, he read me a paper on imperialism. And when did that happen? About ten years ago. A messiah that punctured while the others were going by on inflated tyres. Poor Rolleston punctured ten years ago. And we talked of messiahs going back and back until we arrived at last at Krishna, the second person of the Hindu trinity, whose crucifixion, it is related, happened between heaven and earth. Two beautiful poems and a great deal of scholarship which he doesn't know what to do with. How very sad. And looking at him, I said, a noble head and shoulders. What a good tutor he would make if I had children. So from one remark to another, I was led into saying spiteful things about men whom I did not know and who were destined afterwards to become my friends. Tell me about some of your other contributors. About the professor who writes Latin and Greek verses as well as he writes English. He reviews books for you, doesn't he? Yes, but I beg you to speak a little lower. Or he'll hear you. No, no, he's talking with Gil and Yeats. Gil is terrified, my young friend said, lest Yeats should speak disrespectfully of Trinity College. He has taken a great deal of trouble about his dinner and believes that it will unite the country in a common policy if Yeats doesn't split it up upon him again. At that moment, the professor turned to me and asked me to lunch the following day at Trinity, impressing upon me the necessity of coming down a little early in time to have just a glass of wine before lunch. His doctor had forbidden him all stimulants in the morning, and by stimulants he understood whiskey. But a bottle of wine, he said, was a trenuous thing, and he would like to avail himself of my visit to Dublin to drink one with me. I could see that he had now struck upon his interest in life, and with a show of interest, which he had not manifested in Virgil's poetry, he said, Just a glass of Marsala, the ancient Lillaboom. You know, the grape is so abundant there that they never think of mixing it with bad brandy. At that moment, somebody spoke to me, and when I had answered a few questions, I heard the professor saying that he had gone down for lunch to some restaurant. Nothing much today, John, just a dozen oysters and a few cutlets, and a quart of that excellent ale. Again, my attention was distracted by a waiter pressing some ice pudding upon me, and I lost a good deal of information regarding the professor's arduous day. As soon, however, as I happened to helped myself, I heard a story, whether it related to yesterday or some previous time, I cannot say. After that, I had nothing at all until something brought me to the cupboard, and there, behold, I found a little bottle of lager. I said, Smith has been remiss. He has mixed the bass and the lager. But no, they were all full, twelve bottles of bass and only one of lager, so I took it, as it seemed a stray and lonely thing. It appears that the professor then continued his annotations of Aristophanes until the light began to fade. I thought of calling again on Lillaboom. Really, the more I drink of it, the more honest and excellent I find it. When the bottle was finished, it was time to return home to dinner, and I learned that the professor's abstinence was rewarded by the delight he took in the first whiskey and soda after a dinner. An excellent old pagan he seems to be, Quintus Horatius Flaccus of Dublin, untroubled by any messianic idea. Now Hyde, I've heard a good deal about him. Can you point him now to me? As my neighbour was about to do so, Gil rose up at the head of the table. Speech time has come, I said. Gil read a letter from W.E.H. Lecky, who regretted that he was prevented from being present at dinner, and then went on to say that the other letter was from a gentleman whose absence he was sure was greatly regretted. 
He alluded to his friend Mr. Horace Plunkett, who was, if he might be allowed to say so, one of the truest and noblest sons that Ireland had ever begotten. I've noticed, I said to my young friend, even within a few days I have been in Ireland, that Ireland is spoken of not as a geographical but a sort of human entity. We are all working for Ireland, and I hear now that Ireland begets you, a sort of Watan who goes about. Somebody looked in our direction, somebody said hush. And Gill continued, saying that he had an excellent week in Ireland, one that would be memorable in the history of the country. For the first time, Ireland had been profoundly stirred up upon the intellectual question. He said he regarded the controversy with Yeats's play had aroused as one of the best signs of the times. I showed that they had reached at last the end of the intellectual stagnation of Ireland, and that, so to speak, the grey matter of Ireland's brain was at last becoming active. Ireland's brain. Just now it was the loins of Ireland. Gill's soul set free flowed on rejoicing in journalistic vap that had a depressing effect on Yeats, he who seemed to sink further and further into himself. But continuing unabashed his gentle rigmarole, Gill talked on. He, for one, had always regarded Yeats broadly as one who held the sword of the spirit in his hand and waged war upon the gross host of materialism, and as an Irishman of genius who had devoted a noble enthusiasm to honouring his country by the production of beautiful work. What should he say? of Mr. Martin, there was no controversy about him. Their minds were not occupied by controversy, but with that which must be gratifying to Mr. Martin, and to all of them, the knowledge that he had produced a great and original play, and that Ireland had discovered in him a dramatist fitted to take rank among the first in Europe. I think everybody present thought this eulogy a little exaggerated, for I noticed that everybody hung down his head and looked into his plate except Edward, who stared down the room unabashed, which indeed was the only thing for him to do, for it is better when a writer is praised that he should accept the praise loftily than that he should attempt to excuse himself for a mistake that I fell into at the St. James's Theatre. Gill continued in the same high key, the gathering of Irishmen, which he thought he might say was representative of the intellect of Dublin, and included men of the utmost differences of opinion on every question which now divided Irishmen, was to his mind a symbol of what they were moving towards in this country. He thought they had now reached the stage at which they had begun to recognise profundity of the saying, the mills of God grind slowly, yet the grind exceeding small. Um, alright. Again, I need to pause. There's no real good place to pause in this chapter, but I do need to stop reading. So, another short one. Um, but that's the most I can do at the moment. See you tomorrow.